Good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Christ Jesus. If you would, I'd like to teach you a very simple chorus. A little bit of my um, African culture coming out. I love deep hymns. There is something we don't often get with deep hymns. And sometimes that's me. I don't always focus on worshiping. I have to focus so much on music and many words. So with a little bit of repetition, sometimes that helps that. This little chorus that uh, we learned off of Pablo Yoder's family singing. Hide me under the blood, Lord. has two verses. I'm going to combine the two into one. Maybe we'll sing it through twice as a prayer this morning as we go into the message. Hide me under the blood, Lord, hide me under the blood, Lord, hide me under the blood, Lord, hide me under the blood. Let me see your face, Lord, let me see your face, Lord, and I shall be satisfied. Everyone with eyes closed, let's uh, join in together now. Hide me under the blood, Lord, hide me under the blood, Lord, hide me under the blood, Lord, hide me under the blood. Let me see your face, Lord, let me see your face, Lord, and I shall be satisfied. Amen, Lord Jesus. Let us see your face. Thank you for a little glimpse of your face this morning from your word about your love for us. Thank you, God. Oh, help us to ever gaze at your face and your character in your word to learn more deeply what that means, how that should affect me, how that should empower me, how that should transform me. Teach us your love, God. And as we accept and uh, understand that reality, God, I pray that it would also uh, translate into the way that I love others around me, and Lord, I love you back. Oh God, thank you for those that teaching this morning to 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 give us foundation, God, for many other things. Yea, Jesus said that um, on this hangs all the law and the prophets to love you, to love others. I do not believe we can love you, God, unless we've received your love. Help us, God, to do that. Be with us, God, this morning. Hide us under the blood. Let us see your face. Somehow, God, through your word, somehow would you exalt Jesus Christ this morning. Somehow would you exalt the truth of your word, how it applies to our hearts, how it applies to me personally, to my family, to this local assembly of your body. Oh God, reveal yourself. Let us see your face this morning. As we already got a glimpse, let us see more. Pray that you would hide my face, my person, myself, under the blood of Christ as I stand before the group this morning. And may Jesus Christ be seen. Pray that you would direct my words. I would say nothing more, nothing less than what Christ can use for His glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Turn with me to the book of John. 
for a few opening verses. John chapter 4. There was many different um, thoughts that came to my mind of a way to try to summarize a little bit of what the burden that's on my heart this morning, and uh, I don't think I probably found anything that does a very good job, but here's a few words that helps to summarize the burden on my heart. <clears throat> Finding life between legalism and lawlessness. <clears throat> If you remember the last time that I stood in this place, I um, focused on life, the life of Christ, the resurrected life, and then how, it, how I need to very practically apply that to my heart. And uh, still relates to my burden, finding life. <clears throat> I discovered in some personal talks after some interaction after what I shared last time that, that uh what I shared was not uh, practical enough to to um, even meet totally the burden that I had, and um, God's been doing many things in my heart, um, many questions, things I've been thinking about, meditating about, uh, confusions, temptations that bring confusion in my heart. I've I've uh, been thinking about and meditating on and praying to God about and seeking for answers in His Word. Confusions uh, that come up in my family. Confusions that I hear amongst the brothers and sisters in this congregation, and brothers and sisters not only here, but because I see this this um, type of confusion going on uh, with our sister congregations and other groups of believers at large, and so I believe it's a it's it's a necessary look into the Word of God <clears throat> um, for me today, for us, uh, and for Christendom as a whole. <clears throat> Finding life between legalism and lawlessness. <clears throat> I could have, I, I think, a series of sermons would be would be necessary to really deal with legalism as as a subject, uh, to really deal with lawlessness as a subject. <clears throat> uh, but I'm going to give a bit of an overview and trust the Lord for grace that um, I can try to touch on a, a few things which I believe relate to this issue. So, just kind of uh, a general, broad picture. And forgive me for where I do not, am not able to go into detail and really expound on some of the specifics as, as would, would be good. I want to try to give us a broad picture this morning. To find life between legalism and lawlessness. Do I believe it's possible to find balance between legalism and lawlessness. We need to find life. <clears throat> I have a heart cry, and I believe it beats with a lot of things I'm hearing from you, brothers and sisters. That is to find life. <clears throat> I do not believe that we will <clears throat> be able to deal with legalism or deal with lawlessness. <clears throat> As those temptations do face me on a regular basis, in my heart, both of those, I cannot deal with those by trying to find a balance, trying to strike a balance between the two. In other words, 
I do not believe that I can find the balance between these two by focusing on one in order to pull me out of the ditch of the other. I'm tempted to do that. Many times I fall into that pit. <clears throat> that it usually causes reaction. It's motivated by fear. <clears throat> Scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love. Okay, so if I'm going to cast out that fear, specifically what kind of love do I need? I propose to you that we need a love for Jesus Christ. We need love for Jesus Christ. We're talking about, we're talking about the, 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 some people look at it as a ditch on one side of the road, two ditches on both sides of the road, legalism and lawlessness. What we're talking about is, if we're going to try to find life between those two, we're talking about simple spirituality versus self. And that means that if I am on this side, of legalism, it's because of a self-focus. It's not a focus on the life of Christ. <clears throat> if I'm in lawlessness, in any little thing, some, some, something in my flesh that I've just catered to a little bit, you know, I use this word lawlessness, we think of, of a vagabond out there that rebels against every form of authority out there. No, I don't believe any of us are close to being in that kind of position. <clears throat> If you and I am honest today, probably in this last week, in some form, hopefully we've identified it. Maybe we haven't. I'm sure there's things I haven't. But I have wrestled with a battle against legalism, and I have wrestled with a battle against lawlessness. <clears throat> Again, we don't have time to go <clears throat> and make a bunch of applications, but, but think about that. I know we would like to, in a setting like this, look across the congregation. And I do this in my natural mind many times um, in a wrong way. Uh, and say, okay, if there's legalism and lawlessness in this group, then that particular sister is into lawlessness. That particular brother is into legalism. I'm going to try to not go there. I'm not going to try to go here. I'm going to try to be balanced. A balanced Christian. We all believe we're balanced, by the way, don't we? Because there's reasons why we're doing what we're doing. And all, unfortunately, many times we look amongst ourselves. Scripture says, they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. <clears throat> Finding life. Again, there, we're, we're not focusing on life of Christ. <clears throat> we're focusing on comparing ourselves among ourselves. We're focusing on both ditches. Which one of you, all of us, um, do a lot of driving? Which one of you learned to be a good driver by focusing on the white line? <clears throat> on this side or on that side? Or even focusing too much on the yellow lines. Doesn't work, does it? It works by lifting up your eyes. Looking ahead. And if you can keep your single eye where it needs to be, up ahead, yes, you have a peripheral vision, and you're aware of the white line. You're aware of the line on this side, and the left and on the right. Legalism lawlessness has one thing in common. A self-focus. Spirituality. Christian liberty. Faith. Faith and works working together. That beautiful tension, may I call it. Uh, 
life-giving applications, all of these are only realized in Jesus' focus. Let's look at John chapter 4 here, verse 23. Context is Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. Just bless me as we were uh, going th- uh, through this passage the other day in our family devotions. You know, Jesus was talking about life, wasn't he? We're talking about this context of life and, and giving life, life-giving water. Jesus was talking about life. And in Jesus talking about life to her, she wanted to go into a self-focus of what I will call here legalism. And she wanted to get off of that Razor blade sharp place in between, if I may call it that, of life. She wasn't used to being able to handle that. So she wanted to talk about, should we worship in Jerusalem or should we worship in this mountain? And Jesus made recognition, he was still in the Old Testament context, he made recognition that salvation is of the Jews. And in a sense, indirectly, he was saying the Jews are right to worship. There's a, there's a right obedience there about worshiping the temple there in, in Jerusalem. But... Jesus did not leave her there. He said what? The hour comes and now is when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. The Father is seeking for such to worship Him. He's looking for you. He's looking across this group is looking across the globe. He's looking through my life and he is looking for places where I am in such a position where I will worship him in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> you know, I have for many years, I have looked at that to say someone who truly worships in spirit. <clears throat> someone with his heart is worshiping and then in truth, that he's truly worshipping with his heart. And I think that's the right application. But perhaps there's a deeper application here that I'd like you to consider. Perhaps he's saying that those who will worship him, they will worship him, yes, with a fervency, with some emotion. I've seen true worship sometimes where someone's worshipping and tears are rolling down the eyes. I get mental pictures of magazines from the persecuted church in China. There's a reason why when you're in a persecuted place, uh, when you're going through difficulty and you still choose to trust God, worship comes flowing out of your heart. Uh, My wife testified to that many times when she was down in Honduras uh, with her family searching for the body of her brother. And there was a special worship flowing from their hearts. They didn't drum it up. They didn't expect it. They didn't look for it. It was there. Why? Because there was anguish, there was loss, there was grief. And in their deepest grief, there was the greatest worship that came out. Why? Because they still trusted God. Still trusted God. So that emotion is there. But he says, we shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Have you ever experienced that when you took a practical step of obedience into truth, in following a truth. You know what marks what I call um, kingdom Christianity different? What sets it apart from uh, modern Christianity, for lack of a better term, for um, Christianity, which is, 
it does not produce the same results. <clears throat> you know, the reason that millions across this country today are meeting, and I'm sure in many churches right now the same scripture is being read. Many of the scriptures we're going to read are being read. And the people will, will, will say amen. And they'll feel blessed. And they're going to go home and work it out a very different way. One of the biggest principles is because they have subscribed to a Christianity which is fine with having it up here. It's fine with having it up here. And does not feel like you must work it out in practical steps in order for it to really be life, in order for it to really be good or make you um, a true follower of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> the early Anabaptist emphasized a concept which they called the kingdom now. Jesus is reigning. Not only will He reign in the clouds and in glory, but Jesus is reigning here on earth and He wants to reign in my heart. He wants total abandonment to Him. And that means every time He shows me a truth, that truth is only worth something when I step forward and do something. You know, really, dare I say, do anything about it. Because when I do something in sincerity to apply a truth to my heart, then that brings a gush of life. And dare I say, according to, uh, in the context of this verse, a gush of worship. Just like, may I say, when I have a deeper understanding of the love of God for me, and I thank Him and I praise Him, and there's a gush of worship. Thank you, God, for that. Just the same kind of worship comes from my heart when God says something and I step forward and, um, and do something about it. Let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, just a few verses. That speaks a bit more about this. Do you know how much truth and freedom, liberty goes together? We think of life, we think of freedom, we think of liberty. Listen to the words of Jesus. Verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, not just be amazed in your mind about the truth of that word, but you can, that is a step. If you do something about the word which you've heard, and you do it tomorrow, and you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth. You see? My word. Of course we know the word is truth hear the word, I do it, I continue in it, and the continuing in it will make me to know the truth. And then that truth will make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? <clears throat> they were so steeped in their legalism, so steeped in their Phariseeism, they didn't even know it. They couldn't identify it. They couldn't get the point. They didn't know they were in bondage. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. 
And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Second Corinthians three. Second Corinthians chapter three. Uh, verse 6, first of all. We, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. <clears throat> verse 6, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. This morning we want to find the life, Amen. Want to find the life between legalism and lawlessness. The Spirit will give you life. Brothers and sisters this morning, do I have life? Do you have life? Do I have the Spirit? Synonymous question. The letter kills. I believe here he is speaking directly about the Mosaic Law. And we could say even even more specifically the Ten Commandments. Why do I say that? By uh, experience, I believe that the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, and, and even just many things from Scripture, was given to bring death. It was given to bring death. It was given to show our hopelessness, to show our lostness. It was given to show God's high standard, not to say, keep trying harder to meet up to that standard. <clears throat> Not to say, this is the moral law. You just keep that posted in your house. You just keep that posted in your prayer closet. And you keep trying harder to meet that standard. It took hundreds, maybe thousands of years for God to drill that into the people of Israel until they understood that we don't have what it takes. I fall short of the glory of God. We see, very vividly illustrated through the Old Testament, how they did that. They fell short. That letter was killing them. It was putting a burden on their back. A huge burden. It was showing them their burden of sin. It was showing them their lostness. <clears throat> and it still works the same way today. Praise the Lord. Many of us, you know, even in a remote village, um, several hours drive from electricity and uh, modern life as we know it, still we encounter people with the same general problem you're going to find if you go door to door right here in this town. They're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, Bible says don't kill. I, didn't, I don't kill. And they go down through this. I'm, I'm pretty good. That's why I'm a Christian. <clears throat> the letter kills. The letter if, if we use it appropriately, we'll have to admit, you know what? I have not met the Ten Commandments. I have not met that moral law. So, I'm doomed. We're contrasting. We want life. You must understand death. You must understand how dead you are before you can get life. <clears throat> That's the law. That's legalism. <clears throat> to think 
that by doing this, whether it's simply trying to obey the Ten Commandments or do anything else that's expected by my social sphere, whether it's in church or otherwise, but that by doing this or looking this or acting this, uh, I can achieve spiritual merit before God. Just a very simple definition of legalism. Very simple. A definition. Probably not the best. But that somehow, most people would say that my salvation is based on my works. That's legalism. But even if I count any spiritual merit on the good things that I do, maybe not even just perceived to be good, but the actual good things that I do, if I count any spiritual merit on that, that's why uh, all those things are counted as spiritual rags, as, as filthy rags. In God's sight. <clears throat> Let's go on and jump forward a little bit uh, to verse 29. <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse 17. The last two verses in this <clears throat> chapter. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. <clears throat> if we have the Spirit of God moving among us, we're going to have liberty. If the Spirit of God is truly being revival among us, we're going to have life. These are the kinds of things that we hear when we begin to talk about obedience, we begin to talk about practical steps, and we begin to talk about agreeing on what the, how the Word of God would apply to my life and to our life as, as a um, congregation and as a family on various levels. <clears throat> and then uh, we begin to wander. And believe me, it's not just any particular person here or even in other congregations that I, I do many, very frequently, many times, um, bump into. We're asking these questions. There's a level of confusion. It's in my heart, too. That temptation comes in my heart, too. Okay, so what about this? What about getting on with the more important things? What about going on and um, experiencing this liberty? What about going on and... Having life flowing, beautiful things happening, life flowing here in my life and in my family and in my church. Verse 18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. One of those glories is love for us, isn't it? As we behold the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That Spirit, if it is a true Spirit, working in my life, He changes me. He changes me. It will be obvious to my wife, it will be obvious to my brothers and sisters, that I am on a journey, and I am being changed, and I am seeking for more practical steps that will help me to change my heart. I want to go to the next glory level. From this glory level where I am meeting with God now to the next one. From glory to glory, it happens by that Spirit. Yes, not contradicting, not conflicting, not competing. That same Spirit of liberty. Jesus Christ. There was uh, one minister that was preaching, and he said it like this. When you're looking at these two different ditches that we so easily slip into... uh, You can be just off a little bit. You can be off one inch from the center, focusing on Jesus Christ. On the legalism side. And it 
really is no different than being off a thousand miles. You give me off one inch on a lawless side. And it's no different than being a thousand miles doing things that looks, you know, by the way people grade right and wrong. Way out there somewhere. Because I can do many things that looks like I'm only an inch away. But if my focus is not on Jesus Christ, it will not work. We must live up, lift up Jesus Christ. While we lift up Jesus Christ, we must not run away from the white line on this side or run away from the white line on that side. We must talk about these things. We must warn ourselves of these things. We must find ways to take practical steps of obedience <clears throat> as a way of bringing life Because that's what discipleship is. That's what Jesus calls us to. I'm going to turn real quickly yet to First uh, Corinthians seven. <clears throat> verse twenty nine and thirty one, some difficult verses which I sure do not completely understand. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, it remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy, as though they possessed not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. Brothers and sisters, we have many things. All of us have many things in this world. Things not only tangible, but also intangible. Uh, We have many resources. We have relationships. We have a a heritage of teaching. We have uh, infrastructure in the country, which makes it very easy for us to travel, to communicate. Makes it very cheap, even, to do these things. (laughs) You can buy, for only a couple thousand dollars, a dependable vehicle. For these kinds of roads. If you're going to go to my country, where I come from, you're going to have to spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars maybe to get a dependable vehicle for those kinds of roads. <clears throat> we have an abundance of things. We have wealth. We have houses. We have lands. We have businesses. God is calling us to use these things. To not abuse them. And I, I think perhaps some of what this means is that sometimes I'm tempted to get a little bit of, of, of feeding myself out of these things. That's abusing it. That's abusing it. Sometimes I take something for granted. That's abusing it. Sometimes I uh, do something or I, I buy something, I acquire something uh, because of my personal security, because of my personal comfort <clears throat> in itself, as, as an end in itself. That's abusing it. To use it is to say, okay, I have a need. My wife has a need. My children have a need. There is tremendous opportunities for education. We're going to make use of those things because I want them to be equipped to go and to uh, serve God. And, and um, we have health needs. And so we're going to make opportunity of the tremendous resources that are here to be strong, to be healthy, so we can go and minister the word of truth. <clears throat> Many different things. Use it. <clears throat> Don't abuse it. Turn to that scripture because I feel it fits in a little bit. Um, <clears throat> In our main text we're going to go to now, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 
going to talk a little bit more about this thing of law, which we tend to very quickly put on the side of, of legalism. There is therefore now no condemnation, beginning in verse 1, to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We see that word coming up again, the Spirit of God, walking after the Spirit. Walking is taking steps, amen? Taking a step. Something that you do, something you put your hands on, something that, that is clear, uh, you took a step. You can measure it. It's, it's something that is firm on your heart. <clears throat> something that is obvious. Taking steps, walking after the Spirit. <clears throat> Rather than taking those steps which feeds our flesh. <clears throat> Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We want life, amen? We're, we're looking for the, the truth, the life, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. We want to find the life between legalism and lawlessness. It talks about life here. <clears throat> law of the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus. There is a law which will keep me bound on that razor-sharp edge of Jesus Christ. It's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It has made me free from the law of sin and death. Do you get it? The law of sin, lawlessness, and death. Legalism. Both are wrong. Both are sin. Both bring death. For what the law... And now we're talking about, again, that Mosaic law. The law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. It could do something. It could show you your death. It could show you your, your, your incompetence for salvation, to be qualified before God. But what it could not do, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh... So that, verse 4, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Go down through the Ten Commandments. The righteousness to do those things right, to do those things perfectly. We're called in, in the Sermon on the Mount to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. All these things can only be realized in Christ. Are you in Christ? He is perfect. He was perfect. Always has been. Always will be. If you are hidden in Christ, if your focus is in Christ, then that righteousness, that high standard which man never has, never will be able to attain to, all of a sudden, this scripture is claiming it's fulfilled. Amen? It's fulfilled in us. Who? Who is the us? Who's including that us? Those who walk. Not. After, those who do not take practical steps to feed the flesh. But they walk after the Spirit. They take practical steps after that Focus of Jesus Christ to follow the Spirit. <clears throat> for to be carnally minded. I'm sorry, verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. If you're in the Spirit, you do the things of the Spirit. If you're in the flesh, you do the things of the flesh. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And that's where I have marked in my margin this verse uh, 
cross-referencing in 1 Corinthians 7, <clears throat> we talk about using the world as not abusing it. <clears throat> if you abuse the world, that in general, in a biblical term, is just to be carnally minded. Carnal minded. Carnal is anything that, 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 that's of this world, physical, something you can get your hands on, something that appeals to this flesh, the senses of this flesh. <clears throat> For to be carnally minded is death. If you abuse this world, in other words, not using it the way God intended you to, using it for the wrong thing, it's death. But to be spiritually minded is life and it's peace. Brothers and sisters, to be spiritually minded is life. I think a definition for the opposite of confusion is peace. There's been confusing thoughts sometimes in my mind, saying, okay, really, how much of this is good? How much of that is good? And we talk about, you know, direction for my life and how to work it out and direction for our fellowship and how to work it out in this confusion. That's not peace. We want life and we want peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That carnal, we already talked about, for it is not subject to the law of God. He's not talking about mosaic law that kills. He's not talking about legalism, which is all about myself and my performance. He's talking about the law of God, which only is perfected in Christ Jesus. Neither, indeed, can be. Verse 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Can't do it. That's why I can't fix my problem with legalism by trying to balance it with more lawlessness. That's why I can't fix my problem with lawlessness by trying to balance it with more legalism. Because both are in the flesh. <clears throat> but ye are not in the flesh. Hallelujah. That is both a test to my heart and it's both a promise and a confidence to my heart. You are not in the flesh. This is talking to human beings like you and me. It is possible to be in this flesh, on this world, in this fleshly world, and yet not be in the flesh. One of those beautiful paradoxes of the Christian life. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So, at some point, you have to figure out, by that walking, those practical steps in the direction of the Spirit or after the flesh, what is my life really telling me? And ultimately, you have to answer the question, am I one of his or am I not one of his? If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. That life between legalism and lawlessness. He says it comes because of righteousness. It It comes because of my life, which shows a pattern of doing right because I'm focusing on the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. There I'm lapsing a bit into what I talked about last time. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do kill, cut off, destroy those deeds of the body, ye shall live. Mortify 
is the word here in the King James. We're not indebted to the flesh. We're free from the flesh. Praise the Lord. We're free from the flesh. <clears throat> that means that when I'm tempted to react to a person's um, application of truth, that's a fleshly response. When I'm tempted to um, say, oh, I'm not bound by the law, I'm not under that law, I'm not indebted to that law, <clears throat> then I'm being, to the, I'm being a debtor to the flesh. <clears throat> um, I watch churches near to us that have been in close fellowship with us. I watch individuals that have been in our midst and I watch the steps. I watch my own tendencies when I do one thing, what it quickly leads to. And I watch the steps. Of I quickly realize that thing back there that I saw, whether it is in my life or these tendencies that you see that happen, <clears throat> that, was, that was yielding to the flesh. Pretty soon, this, this new style of dress or belt or glasses or sandal or whatever it is, uh, because we're free. The Bible doesn't say what kind of piece of clothing you should wear and these, some of these practical things. And so because I'm free, and I say I'm not bound to the law, I do this, but I'm so quickly bound. So quickly bound to what everyone's watching, what they're thinking of me, and, and comparing myself with others. <clears throat> That's, I think, what this is talking about. I'm quickly become a debtor quickly become a debtor to my own fleshly desires. And it just uh, goes on and on until at some point it says that if you live that way, you will die. My spiritual life dies completely. <clears throat> and thus we see shocking things that happen in individuals and even whole churches where the life is gone. Finding order, effectiveness, efficiency, harmony, for the greater purpose of the kingdom of God, is our goal. That's our goal. In this local assembly, this local expression of that. That's our goal. We want to find order. We want to find effectiveness in the kingdom of God. Not just a place I can come every Sunday morning and I feel comfortable that I fit in. No one's making changes I'm not comfortable making. <clears throat> Those things happen, may or may not happen as a side effect. But the goal, the purpose, is that we can become effective in our communities, in our businesses, in our, our cities, <clears throat> and in the world. <clears throat> The goal is that we can be something attractive to the world. We can be something that the world, they might look on, they might say, there's many teachings there I never heard from the Bible before. There's many teachings there that I don't totally understand. But there is something beautiful. There's something harmonious. There's something attractive. I can't stay away. That's the order we want. That's the reason for having something beautiful. Because it's effective. Beauty is effective. And it ministers to us and to those that we minister to. Ignoring practical applications will not produce this. On the one hand, 
ignoring the practical steps, the directives, the, the, the things which I must make and which I maybe need help from the wiser um, brothers and leaders among us to know what are the dynamics. If I do this thing, how is that going to affect me? What temptation is that going to give to me? And how is that going to affect others to give others, other people temptations? <clears throat> um, <clears throat> we ignore those things. We're, we're never going to get that. We're never going to get that kind of unity in the faith. That we can work together as a beautiful, well-oiled machine. <clears throat> On the other hand, maintaining practical applications at the expense of principles will not produce this either. <clears throat> and that's why God calls each of us uh, to be spiritual. And those of us who are spiritual have grown further on that road. We have responsibility to help others. All of us, brothers and sisters, we all have a role to play to be disciples and to disciple others along this path. And there is a special responsibility, a level of responsibility that God gives. And, and we also acknowledge, as fellow brothers and sisters, we acknowledge of a brother, a leader, two, three, four, five perhaps, in a local congregation who have responsibility to see to it that we do this. <clears throat> and to give the counsel and to give the direction... <clears throat> We have responsibility to call these who are spiritually minded. That they can then, with their walk with God and their spiritual mind, say, okay, this is a principle of Scripture. This is how we must work it out today. This is something that is going to be timeless. This is something that is for this month. This is something that's for this particular activity. This is something that's for this particular outreach. This is something that's for uh, this year. All those different levels. They need to lead us. And they need to show us. Let's get an example. <clears throat> we talked about beauty. It, the thing of harmony. <clears throat> uh, music. There's some of us in here that uh, have studied music in depth and have put a lot of work and effort into singing with a couple of other people or even a big chorus. Uh, and to get something that is really beautiful, <clears throat> it takes a few things. <clears throat> it requires structure. Does it not? It requires strict adherence to the laws of music. There are certain notes which harmonize. There are uh, certain pitches that makes, when the right combination makes a a chord, a beautiful chord. There's a right place, I say, I'm not sure how this applies, but there's a right place for a bit of a discord to make that chord coming up more beautiful. There is major chords and there's minor chords. And we want to major on the major chords. We want to minor on the minor chords. But sometimes we need the minor chords in order to make the major chords more beautiful. Do we not? <clears throat> it requires a director who faithfully follows those laws of music and coordinates each of our roles. <clears throat> those of you who have been in the Harmony of Praise Choir, um, you, you've seen you know, I don't think that choir would be half of what it is if we didn't have someone like Jesse to, to lead that or someone like him and to say, okay, this is the way music works. We're going to follow this. And this is the effect we're going to have. We're going to have to have a certain number of tenor. We're going to have to have a certain number of bass. And if we got too many bass here, hey, fellas, how many of you could possibly sing tenor? And uh, 
we, we learn. We stretch ourselves a bit in different places. We have flat spots in this group. And, and uh, a couple people say here, well, I can sing bass better, but uh, yeah, I could sing tenor. Will you help me? Sure, we'll help you. And you've got to get those things balanced. <clears throat> Many illustrations we can get. Now, <clears throat> there is nothing in music, in the laws of music, which says that Timothy Zeissett must always sing tenor. Is there? There's nothing in the laws of music that says uh, John Nolt must always sing bass. But Jesse, in order to get the right effect, will say, Tim, you have too many tenors over here. John, there's too many basses. Would you possibly consider? I think this is something that, that you could do for the benefit of the whole, to make this beautiful, to make this work. <clears throat> You're making the, the applications. <clears throat> It requires many members who faithfully follow their director. It requires discipline. It requires doing something like, as I just illustrated, not always the easiest for me. It requires uh, learning new skills. It requires uh, doing things I'd rather not do. It requires not doing things I would rather do. And if I was singing a solo, believe me, I think half of those things at least would be just cut right out. But because there's something that you get from a group, amen, that you don't get by a solo, <clears throat> Because it's commanded in Scripture when it comes to the church um, by the many things which we must work out that you can only produce with, with the group. It requires practice. Sometimes more practice than what we would like. Sometimes it takes more time, more effort than what we feel like we even have. And so because of that, some of us didn't join the Harmony Praise Choir this year. Is that right? God forbid that we fall in that trap in the local church. <clears throat> But, it's beautiful. Amen? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Another example. We talked about an example of harmony in music. I have an example here of an oasis. And, uh, maybe slightly on purpose, but actually most of my reason for choosing these two different examples was not because of certain church names. Um, we would like to be like a, a place that is full of life, life-giving water that produces beauty, produces life-giving trees, uh, full of fruit, and well-ordered gardens, well-watered gardens. We would like to have that kind of water, life-giving water flowing here. We would like to have an oasis. We would like to have something that's attractive, maybe hundreds of miles away. I've seen it uh, flying over the Sahara Desert. I've been in a, well, not much, but on the edge of the Sahara Desert. Uh, I've seen it flying however many miles high, way out there, maybe hundreds of miles away. There is a green circle, and there's an oasis over there. <clears throat> we want something that is so stands out to this world that you can pick it up from a long distance away. You can get an inkling of something that's going on over there, and you're just drawn like a magnet. You want to go see this. Something that provides the life which which uh, all the living creatures, the camels and the, the people who live in those places and, and even many different animals, they must find those places. Their life depends on it. We want to be an oasis. We want life, amen? We want that life. We want to find that life. <clears throat> I think it takes all the things we just mentioned. The discipline, the order, the, the following leadership and all these things we just mentioned in example of harmony. But I think it, it requires a bit more. Two, two more things. I'd like to use an example. I saw a, 
a uh, documentary on the uh, a group of people living in the Sahara Desert that made an oasis. And this thing of taking time and effort, it took, if I remember right, generations. Many, many, many years. <clears throat> but they made an oasis. And how did they do it? They uh, <clears throat> found that there's this there is this ridge of rock down below the sand. Somehow, generations ago, it's passed down by tradition. They know there's this ridge of rock down in there, which has a type of soil which contains water. From, they believe, maybe thousands of years ago, when there was water flowing in those areas, it wasn't just a desert, this soaked up or contained somehow in the cavities in this rock, it, it holds water that's been sitting there. Just sitting there. It's not been tapped. And we're talking about a range down under the sand that goes for, I believe it was, many, many miles. Um, sorry, I didn't, didn't look up the, uh, the actual figures, but uh, I'm thinking even over 100 miles. And so <clears throat> they found that they can dig, hand-dug wells through the sand, and they can get into this soil and they get water. So they dig down and get a little bit of water. They found that this whole area is up. It's locked in because of the, 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 the way the soil is. It's locked in, but it's up at a higher elevation. There's a lower elevation here at the one end of this ridge <clears throat> where when they tap this water, they could tap it into a pipe and they could run it and it comes out above ground level and runs into an open area. So they started doing that. But of course, you do a hand-dug well. <clears throat> we talked about Maji on... Uh, Wednesday night, and uh, how it, it goes sometimes to dig a hand dug well, and you get a little bit of water. So you get a little bit of water. And to make this successful, what they had to do is dig another well. And then they had to dig a tunnel between the two wells. And now it is the tradition and the responsibility as this community continues to grow and as the, the population grows and they want to sustain the, the, the life that they have, all their plants, their fruit trees, their gardens, everything depends on this water, each generation must teach the next generation how to keep digging wells. And here is the spine-tingling part, how to keep connecting those wells. And when they connect those wells, <clears throat> they pray prayers. They tremble. They put their life on the line. Because they're down underneath, not just under an open well, they're down underneath the dirt. And remember, this is soils that probably not as stable as what we're used to around here with sand and different things going on above you. And uh, there's a significant percentage of people that when they are just connecting, one person is digging from his well, digging through this arch, bigger than a man, digging through this arch, the other person is digging from his well, they're coming together. And on the day, they can tell they're getting close that's the dangerous day. And many times, the, sand, the, the, the soil above them collapses when they're connecting. Making any comparisons here? The soil above them collapses and they both die. It's dangerous work. But do you know what they know they need to do? They need to provide life. They need to provide life for their children, for their wives at home. For the next generation. 
their dad and their grandpa and their uncles tell them about when they connected their wells when they were in their 20s and 30s. And so and so died. But all the rest of us are living because he did. So it requires laying down your life and harmony in music is beautiful but it produces what? it produces life hallelujah praise the Lord it produces life and that's what I want and that's what you want that's what my minister in this church wants But, it takes practical applications. It takes steps. It takes work. It takes um, being willing to lay down my life. It takes being willing to lay down my preferences. It takes being willing to do things that I don't understand. <clears throat> Submission in Scripture, <clears throat> let's be fair. When I agree with someone, and I say, you know what, you're right, I see it. That's what I want. And then he tells me to go do it. Have I submitted to him? No. That's agreeing. That's seeing eye to eye. That's being comrades. But submission is to say, brother, I want life. I am willing to make any practical step to get it. <clears throat> I want to provide life. I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to lay down my preferences. <clears throat> Notice we talked about one thing where if a practical step overrides another principle, then that's a whole different issue. If a practical step uh, is believed to help principle over here but really isn't helping that principle and in the meantime is actually ruining a principle here in my life that, that I must, I'm responsible to God for, then it's wrong then a leader who is spiritually discerning, then a leader, if he calls you to do that, he, he's stepping outside of his bounds. <clears throat> but I do not believe that our struggle is with having spiritually discerning leaders. I think our struggle is with recognizing that sometimes he's seeing a principle that I'm not seeing. And I'm being defensive and I'm not wanting to follow a practical step to aid and support that principle because of myself. I'm not willing to lay down myself. Not because I even have a clear... Uh, conviction responsibility for before God to maintain a different principle. Submission is to obey when I disagree. Or at least when I don't understand. At least when it means giving up something I prefer. <clears throat> at least it means that much. There's some confusion. I'd like to look more specifically at some of these confusions. <clears throat> There's some confusion surrounding this whole thing of making life applications. <clears throat> And I'm going to touch on just a few. Um, this is not at all exhaustive, but some things that have stood out to me. The confusion surrounding life application. There's the, the confusion that application is everything. Application is everything. I think most of us can look at church circles where if you apply certain things that you will then uh, be considered to be everything the church is asking of you. <clears throat> Whether or not 
those applications have helped your heart or not. Helped your heart in the right direction or, or, or helped anyone else. That, that for the sake of it, in itself, it is helpful. Um, <clears throat> there is a confusion that application is nothing. We see that, and then we, and I, I hear these statements being made in our setting. I have made these statements until I thought deeper about it and realized how dangerous it is. Not meaning to be dangerous, and I know that's probably usually the way it is when it's made. Not meaning to be dangerous, not really, but we're just focusing on how that application is not everything. So we say application is nothing. <clears throat> Um, to say that is to say that the application has nothing to do with my spirituality. Okay, well, there's a person and he is choosing certain clothes just for the sake of it and he is not changing his heart. He's not a modest person. He's not a conservative person in his other values. He he, he expresses it in the way he builds his house. He expresses it in the way he does business. He expresses it in the way he eats at, at the Sunday dinner. And so... He doesn't have his heart behind what he's doing. And so those clothes don't do him any good. Truth does not mean that the same application won't do me any good. So let's not react and say that application is nothing. Um, May I take that a step further and propose to you that possibly one of the confusions is that we fail to recognize that it is necessary to make very practical applications in order to change my heart. Or in order to keep my heart in the right place. And yes, I am proposing that possibly it is necessary to make an application before my heart is changed. And even possibly in some set times, make an application before my heart will agree to make that change. Sometimes I can't see that. Sometimes I need a faithful brother or a father, whether physically or spiritually, to come alongside of me and say, Brother, if you would make this practical application, would that help your heart? <clears throat> Do it. Submit to that possibility for the sake of your own good and for the sake of the, the whole, some dynamics that are going on in this group that you may not realize. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> failure to recognize, I'll say it again, that it is necessary to make very practical applications in order to change my heart. And that is my goal. I'm saying, God, I don't like this. And God says, well, what could you do that would free you from that um, temptation? As simple as this. Okay, I would trust that as we go on our Christian life, most of us men can drive past the same billboard every day that has terribly lewd pictures on it, and we do what we got to do, we we know it's there, we, we turn our eyes the other direction, and it does not make a problem. But I would propose that probably all of us at one stage in our life, in our teens or wherever it was, or at one stage of our Christian growth, we had to do something more dramatic. And it was a bigger, bigger battle. And maybe even to the point where you had to drive around the block. Okay, that should bring so much excitement and energy into my life. If I did that, I say, God, my thoughts keep going this wrong direction of lust, and I must change it. God, what can I do? And God says, you could drive around the block. Am I right? That brings life. That brings excitement. And you can say, well, you're just diverting the problem. No, that is proving, I am proving to myself and to my brothers and sisters that I am serious about this issue in my life. And that does something. I can say in a very short amount of time, those kind of things, you'll experience a new level of victory. 
Um, I know a brother that loved sports. He was particularly good at basketball, and he loved playing basketball. And uh, he did well, and, and he just loved it. He's an active person, and, and so he played basketball. And this was, I think, when he was a teenager. He also loved God. He wanted to follow God. He was praying, God, why don't I get the amount of time that I really want to spend in your word, and why am I distract, distracted with other things? And God says, well, you remember last week? You spent your Sunday afternoon playing basketball. You could make an adjustment there. So he says, okay, God, for your sake and because of this, not because to play a game of basketball is sin. Do you understand, brothers and sisters? But that brother says, okay, I'm going to put away basketball. I'm not going to play basketball with my friends at all. Now, he's a father, and so he plays a little bit of wannabe basketball with his sons because he loves his sons. And that's been maybe 10 years ago. That uh, or 15 years ago, that he was put that aside, and, and it doesn't affect him anymore. But he's still not going to go back and start playing basketball like he used to. He only does it when he has a purpose for it, <clears throat> uh, for a higher purpose. Um, <clears throat> all of us have faced this, where if you're honest, you think too much about the way I'm dressing on this particular day or in this particular setting. <clears throat> when I put on a particular garment. You, I, need to make a practical choice. Take a step. God, I want my heart to change. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to put this away because the last two or three times I put it on, I found myself later in the day thinking too much about it, thinking too much about myself. God, I want to be free from myself. We want freedom. We want liberty. We want life in Christ Jesus. And because of that, I'm going to choose not to do this. You know, actually, I purposely been looking for things that I can bring for illustrations, which is not... An issue here. And I'm not saying these are, I'm saying some of these things are an issue for all of us, but I'm saying nothing that's particularly an issue. I'm just trying to say, give examples. I'm trying to, uh, look at the principle. I'm not trying to deal with any particular, that's why I make it clear. I am not trying to deal with any particular need in this congregation, or even, yeah, in this congregation, or even in our churches at large. Uh, but I'm, I'm just, uh, trying to help us see this principle of what can give us life. <clears throat> Another confusion is that we fail to recognize that the meaning of the application to others will affect them in ways that may not affect me. And because of that, I may or may not do that thing. That could affect someone in a way which does not affect me. That's where we really need each other. You know, my wife is giving me much insight as to the way uh, the ones on this side of the room look at things. See, we need each other. My wife helps me. She shows me. Um, and it works the other way around. And so it works from older generation to younger generation. So it works from younger generation to older generation. Sometimes us uh, teenagers, yeah, I'll put myself in your category, sometimes we need to tell our fathers, uh, speak up to the older man above me and say, you know what? So-and-so just bought a new truck and that was the one I was tempted to buy and I really, to die to my flesh, I chose to buy an older one. I chose to buy a different one, different model, whatever. And, uh, okay, we can obviously give some grace to each other. I, I'm just throwing out an example. There is things that we need to do to say, 
look, you, you in your stage of life are not dealing with temptation this way, but it is affecting others in this congregation. <clears throat> That's a principle. I can do that. It doesn't hurt my Christian life, right? It's not violating another principle which I must uphold. It might violate my preference. It might violate something I think I really need. I really need that particular feature. <clears throat> I think I do. But, um, you know, remember, a sense of loss done for the sake of Christ and in faithfulness to Christ brings worship. Is that right? So if I actually sacrifice something that is a sac- true sacrifice to me in order to bless or encourage someone else, that's beautiful. Failure to recognize that when I make an application for the sake of others, it is not wrong, as long as it does not violate my own conscience based on some other principle. Let me give you an example of the necktie. And I face this one, um, being as I'm in both cultures here and in Tanzania. Uh, I have associated with a group of of brothers, um, ministers, in a very conservative um, Pentecostal setting there in Nubea. And uh, we have some sweet fellowship. And I preach very direct kingdom sermons to them, and, and uh, God has been using it. Uh, and so we got talking one time about dress, what's appropriate, what's respectful dress. And they will usually wear uh, a lapel suit, and uh, oftentimes with a necktie. And uh, I explained to them my home culture, and how that even in my heart, and in my home culture, it's viewed as an adornment. And I expressed to them that I want to be Clear. I don't want to. I don't want to give any idea that um, I'm doing anything as an adornment. They talked about modesty. Uh, for them, there wasn't so much coming up with the idea that you must have a lapel to cover so that uh, if your shirt button comes open a little bit, that uh, you can't see through in. Uh, but that I understand is possibly at one point uh, one of the reasons for a necktie. And for some people, it is. And it's a respect issue. It's a dress-up issue for some people. And that is also a principle. I don't think it's as strong of a principle as modesty, and so you have to choose between those things. But some people don't think about one, and they think about the other. And there is very sincere Christians on both sides of that scale. And now, I don't feel necessary to wear any kind of suit when I come here. I appreciate the standard of simplicity. I think there's good things in life that that brings here. But there, I got myself a suit. I didn't get myself a lapel suit. I... uh, we have to be very careful because we walk in both cultures. We have to try to apply life to both cultures. So um, sometimes when they dress up, they will actually have some looks very respectful and dressed up. But it's simply a very plain shirt. Actually plainer than this. It has no collar. It has just a, a stand-up collar. And it has a shirt pocket just like this. And it hangs straight. And it goes down for their uh, shirt, sli- um, t- uh, shirt tail than this. And it, and it hangs straight. And you wear it that way. You wear it straight. So it gives a little bit of a, a coat appearance. And, uh, and that's a dress shirt for them. Now, some of them will, you know, get ones like that, and they'll do special designs and embroidery, but some don't. <clears throat> so I chose one that was as simple as possible. And I asked them, does this meet the need of modesty? And with a T-shirt underneath and, and this. And, and uh, they said, oh, yeah, that's, what, that's not only modest, that's, that's respectful, and oh, that covers the need. But for me to walk in there, like we would tend to do sometimes in our settings, uh, especially wearing a short sleeve shirt, things like that, they would just feel like you're... you're, you're, you're Disrespecting. Um, and so, uh, that's just an example. Uh, the thing of violating other people's consciences or doing something which indicates something to someone else that doesn't necessarily indicate to me. And to being careful about that. Uh, there's an example of 
a uh, recently heard a story of a young man when he was uh, either when he was courting or he was young married. He uh, came one time to visit at his father-in-law's house, and his father-in-law to be or his father-in-law. Uh, they got to talking, they're sitting in the living room, and they're talking, he starts digging. He starts asking questions about his walk with God, and what God's doing in his life, and his spiritual walk with God, and, and uh, if he's doing well, and he began to wonder, what's he digging for? And uh, he kept digging, and eventually he says, well, was it a... Eventually it came out that he was concerned about the color of the car that he drove in. And uh, it was simply two cultures, two backgrounds coming together and never having understood, never having even thought about it. He never once thought that a red car would be viewed as feeding the flesh. And I know his background, and I'm pretty confident that that's really the way it was. Oh, well, I don't want to give that message to anybody. And so he found out. And so then what did he do? He says, I've never driven a red car since. And he's happy about it. He's glad that he could find something practical to bless someone and to bless the kingdom of God. Total free spirit, no complaining, no feeling under bondage. He's freed. In fact, he has life poured into his life he wouldn't have had otherwise. Just because he had something practical that he could do to bless the kingdom of God. And, uh, yeah. The story goes like this. This refers a bit more to leadership. We're going to talk about that just for a few minutes. Um, There... Recently, I heard of a, a pastor in a faraway state that had a young person come to him. And this young man, young unmarried man in his teens, was sharing with this other pastor. Uh, I'll just tell it in the words of, of this pastor. He said, this young man comes to me, and he's talking about leadership in the church, and the good things that's happening in their church, and how he was really blessed by something that happened recently. Uh, they had a brother's meeting. And in their brother's meeting, they talked about, I don't know what the subject was, they talked about some particular subject and, and the ministers really uh, gave clear direction about some practical issue and said, this is not good, this is not good for the health of our church, this we must put away. I don't know what it was. And then, after a couple weeks, they had another brother's meeting and the ministers came and said, hey, we had a couple of people come to us and talk about that. And we just want to tell you that we're sorry. We weren't leading uh, in the, with serving the right way we should have been. I'm not sure all the reasons they gave, but they said we're sorry. Uh, some people feel like that we came across too hard. And, and on that basis, we're going to back down. And not because they changed their, their principles or they viewed something different, principle from God's word, or difference in truth. Uh, we, we just feel like we shouldn't give such clear direction. And this young man is telling me just how uh, blessed he is. He's such wonderful leaders. <clears throat> and uh, this pastor rebukes him and says, <clears throat> that's sad. He says, your leaders were looking out for you. They were doing something good for you. They were not seeking their own self-interest. What you need to do, you need to go back to them and say, I'm sorry you backed down. I need that. What can I do to make your job easier? 
See what the old man replied? He said, in these words, I'm deathly scared of legalism. When the pastor replied, get over it. I think that's right. It's an example of someone that is scared of legalism and trying to focus on lawlessness and bring that in in order to try to balance out what maybe has been at times legalism. <clears throat> and believe me, you know, you know this pastor enough to know that he's not one that we would consider is, is uh, in the ditch of legalism or, or <laughs> advocating that at all. But the fact is just this very simple thing. I'd like to talk a little bit about leadership. The fact is just a simple thing. We need leaders who lead. <clears throat> and that in particular, in issues which in themselves are not sin, but to lead us into walking after Christ, lead us into things which will are steps of obedience, steps that can help our hearts to focus on Christ. And to be free from the flesh. <clears throat> We're talking about things that can help us, can help our congregation. <clears throat> um, something that can help you have victory over a heart struggle. Help you reach that heart and to turn it in the way it needs to go. <clears throat> so you want life. Applications, if used, with the goal to change your heart are necessary to bring that life. <clears throat> so where do you start? How do you know which applications are most needed or most helpful? Um, I feel like I stand in a bit of a unique place this morning. I do not have the special responsibility of a, an ordained leader in this congregation. Um, and so I, I just like to say, me and you, us together, let's do something. Let's go and ask them the answers to these questions that I just asked. Let's go ask them. Tell me. Speak into my life. What applications will be most needed, most helpful? Go to your, just like the pastor told that young teenager, go to your pastor and ask him, what can I do to make your job easier? What can I do? Ask your leader. I have a question. If you think of a farmer... What does a farmer do? He farms. Is that right? A fisherman. What does a fisherman do? He fishes. Okay. Um, A blacksmith. What does a blacksmith do? He does blacksmith work. A carpenter. What does a carpenter do? Yeah, he does carpentry. What does the leader do? Why, why do we have a harder time figuring that one out? <laughs> a leader follows. Uh-huh. Tongue in cheek. I'm afraid. Sometimes we expect that to happen. Sometimes we expect the leader to follow just whatever happens to be the, the uh, majority vote. Now, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to just consider... Now, this is not. This sermon is not focusing on authority. Uh, um, so 
not doing justice to that subject, but just consider possibly a comparison that can give us some direction on what a leader is supposed to do and how he's supposed to do it. Is it clear to us who is a leader in your home? I bless God. We have a group here that we, we, we have good, clear teaching on the home. We have the structure, I think, very biblically. And, and it's very helpful to us. Who is the leader in your home? Is it not the man of the house, the husband, the father? We had a good illustration here a couple weeks ago of, of a father and what his role is and how he should lead, how he should direct his children. And how that he, we even heard a story of how that a father one time helped his son to change his heart by giving him something, a commandment, you must change this particular thing about your car. And he didn't just change that one thing, he went and changed a bunch of other things that needed to happen once when his heart changed, because his heart changed. <clears throat> father is supposed to lead. <clears throat> Leaders in the church are supposed to lead <clears throat> in the same way. And they need to, let's say a father is going to make a major decision. He's going to move. He's thinking about it. He feels it's best. As he's researched, job, church, whatever, ministry, opportunity, there's a good reason to move to this new location, hundreds of miles away. Will he just all of a sudden come home one day and say, wife, children, pack up. Next week, we're moving. Here's the reasons why. Good reasons. Would a wise father do that? No. Would a wise father come home and say, okay, uh, here's some reasons why I think that might be good for us to move, and we're going to sit down around the, the, the living room, we're going to have a vote. Uh, two-year-old, four-year-old, six-year-old, ten-year-old, eighteen-year-old, wife, and me, we're all going to take votes. Or the majority falls, that'll tell us whether we move or we don't. The answer is clear. Am I right? Um, the 18-year-old is going to have some wise things. If he's a wise son, if he's thinking at all himself, he's been trained to think, if his father has been wise in training him, he's going to have some good input to give that needs to be heard and needs to be factored as that father considers whether or not they should move. The wife will probably have even more, and she's going to have a, things to, factors to think about that he might not have thought about, so he's going to be asking her questions. But do any of them want the ultimate responsibility to say, I made the decision, and it's because of me the decision was made? Um, because of maybe it's a little bit different, perhaps the father will wisely give some consideration because of the input he got from those teenagers and from the wife, he will decide not to. But that I made the decision, I'm responsible for the decision. No. Our wives know their place of blessing. They would not want that. Neither would those teenagers. <clears throat> but with responsibility comes authority. Is that right? <clears throat> with authority comes responsibility. I think we get the Comparison. Is that possibly, is God word, God's word possibly wanting to illustrate the teachings of the home? Is that possibly a biblical thing to direct us a bit in how uh, our leaders should lead? Consider that question. First <clears throat> um, Thessalonians 2.11 says, As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. It's making a comparison. As a, as a father exhorts, comforts, relates with his children. Paul says, that's how I did it to you. Seems to be lifting up as a good thing and as an ideal. 1 Timothy uh, 3.4, one, one of the qualifications for a bishop is one that ruleth well his own house. I'm sorry. Yes. 
ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Next verse. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Possibly is that telling me that uh, one of the best places to learn and to develop the skills, similar skills and principles that are necessary to rule the church of God and lead the church of God happens as a father. And if he does well there, he's going to do well in the church. So maybe there's a bit more comparison there than what we really live out. John talks in his epistle, 1 John, about three different levels he addresses. Different levels of maturity that perhaps, and this is spiritual maturity, need to be taken into factors as leaders relate to their congregation. There's little children, young men, and fathers. He speaks many times in that way. Is it possible that we were fair to the biblical comparison of the authority, responsibility, structure of the church to the home? We would be able to more readily accept a new believer in Christ into full membership of the local church. <clears throat> Should a church leader be free to put more heavy value on the perspective of a more mature believer than a spiritual baby or youth when he is making practical decisions for the church? In a home, who is ultimately responsible to make the major decisions? What about in the church? Is it reasonable? That simple voting should direct the church. We would not generally do it that way in the home. <clears throat> and this happens uh, mostly in things that uh, is not the type of biblical content, uh, preaching and teaching that comes across this pulpit. On this level, it's more talking about issues uh, which directly determine, not the issue that directly determine whether or not you're a Christian, whether in itself is a sin or non-sin issue. Um, <clears throat> things which would... Um, Things that bring us to be a highly efficient group of people in the kingdom of God. For example, your family decides that you're going to minister to the down and out family next door. First thing you're going to do, go mow the lawn and fix the screen door. Alright, you get there. And father takes his role. He says, son, you go get the lawnmower. Son, you go get the screwdrivers. Okay? He's delegating responsibility, is he not? Now, it's not sin for a certain person to run a lawnmower or not to run a lawnmower. But there has to be a flow. Is that right? There has to be directions. There has to be practical steps taken. <clears throat> this particular person uh, cannot stand having a dog on his property, and so we do not take the dog along. The dog stays chained at home. Well, the next family might love if you bring the dog along over. So you do, you know. But the leader has the discernment. He has the relationship. He has the facts, and he knows the practical steps that's going to make this work. Because of a particular mission, a particular job needs to be done. We are on a mission. We are in a battle. And in battles, in wars, there is clearer examples than ever anywhere else of people that, that have a clear vision of a structure and a chain of authority. Because there's many details. Shots that must be called on the move. In dangerous situations. You must obey without hesitation because your life is at stake. If you do something wrong, you might kill someone you don't want to kill. All these things. That is the way the church is. The church is not just a social gathering. We come together for our own comfort and feeling alike or looking alike. That's not what it's about. We have things that we must accomplish, which is not even fair to ask, is it right or wrong sometimes? But it's just, we've got to get somewhere. We've got to do something. There's a war out there. There's a job. There's a mission. If I believe that this setting in the local church is not a place to make practical applications beyond what is expressly commanded in Scripture, then why am I here? Why do I come here? 
I can read my Bible at home. I can get all those express commandments at home with me and my Bible. And my typical TV preacher. Maybe. But is that not what most American Christianity is? The only reason they really come to church is because of the social dynamics. Is that not why the phenomenon of many people who call themselves Christians in our land actually resort to that? They're at home. Is that not what sets us apart in our vision of kingdom Christianity? But if I believe that God has a practical function in His kingdom that I can only accomplish in a group, then I'll come into this setting and throw my whole heart into all of the direction, all of the disciplines, all of the standards that the group and its leaders require in order, and get this, in order to accomplish our mission in our corner of God's kingdom. One historian talked about a um, group of churches, which is our roots, and uh, the, the blessing in, that they experienced. Uh, and he says that he believes that one of the most important factors was the ingenious of the brothers' meeting. I think I know why. It's because in the brothers' meeting setting, we have a, an opportunity to talk about things and our leaders to lead us about practical issues and to give teaching even in a way and to organize this church into more than just what we see on a Sunday morning, something that can be on a mission to accomplish something in the corner of God's kingdom where he has placed us. <clears throat> the ingenious of the brothers' meeting. <clears throat> we have an opportunity. Let's not abuse that. <clears throat> the fast, um, I'd like to give an example from the Moravian church uh, who took this ingenious thing and they took it many steps further. <clears throat> and obviously it was in good direction. Because they had a powerful um, outcome. The fascinating thing, I'll say this from the beginning, about the Moravian Church, was that while they maintained a much, much more stringent uh, standard, practical standards than other groups, they were exemplary, even to those other church groups, in expressing charitableness toward the other groups, and accepting them as true Christians. They were nothing close to a cult. They were actually a bit ecumenical. We would not be comfortable with exactly how accepting they were people who did things very different. <clears throat> Example is uh, like the Methodists and, and various other churches. Uh, <clears throat> so you see, it wasn't just about becoming a believer. They didn't believe this was just a, a salvation issue or a, a sin versus not sin issue. There were things that they saw, practical steps they could take to work out the life-giving flow uh, of Christ in the kingdom of God, in their corner of the world, and believe me, didn't stay in a corner very long. <laughs> and so the Moravians are very popular for some things which are dramatic, um, such as the 100-year prayer chain, and such as their worldwide mission program. And if they are not the most, they are one of, one of the most uh, beautiful and effective examples of what a group of believers can, uh, can be and do in God's kingdom. Ever. In all of history. <clears throat> They're so popular for those things, but what you'll find much harder to uncover is really what produced that. I'm going to give a few examples. <clears throat> Many people today admire the Moravians for their great communion service. August 13. 
1727, which uh, started the 100-year prayer chain, and the later worldwide mission outreach, but few people really know the context from which those fruits sprang forth. The holiness, the orderliness, the submission of one to another, the Moravian brethren, are almost ignored. As if the fruits came in spite of the roots instead of because of the roots. The reason I share this is because history, and this illustration of history, has been more convincing to me than ever before that, no, it's not dangerous for me to give up my desires in very practical issues and submit them to a group or to a leader who has some spiritual discernment. Hard work. Laziness was not put up with. You lived in their community, meant 16 hours of work or ministry Every day, leaving three hours for meals and five hours for sleep. Standard was five hours for sleep. And you were accountable to that. The day started with a meeting at 4 a.m. 5 a.m. in the winter. Ended with a singing meeting in the evening. That's how they taught, to shun idleness. Holiness. They knew how to content themselves with extremely frugal diet, small dwellings, and mere necessities of furniture. Their attire was very plain. On working days, the brethren attended the meetings in the clothes they wore in their workshops and the sisters in the dress which they used in the house. In short, their moderation and constant labor to which they were accustomed to from their childhood, their confidence in God, added together with the beneficence of the richer brethren, furnished enough resources that none of them ever lacked the necessaries of life. At the same time, none enjoyed life's superfluities. Anyone accustomed to seeking his own ease, desirous of amassing riches, or indisposed to follow the Savior through poverty and strict economy, would have been soon recognized as a person unfit to belong to this society. Worldly entertainments, drunkenness, dancing, swearing, frivolous talk, gambling, the like, they would not tolerate their houses or elsewhere. Fathers of families should not frequent uh, public houses and taverns and, and etc. <clears throat> there were no youth group, no youth groups going on outings to the forest or beating around a volleyball. Only children played games. And those were limited to family time. Once the child became a man or woman, childish things were expected to be put away. And the new young man or woman was expected to put their hand to the plow and not look back. This step into adulthood was expected to happen in the early teens, if not before. John Wesley wrote concerning them, The Moravians have no diversion, but such as are proper for holy people. John Wesley also after many years of his movement having gone on and him seeing where the Moravian church ended up in contrast, he said, he lamented, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but he lamented, oh, if only I would have been given practical direction in matters of dress and lifestyle. I went wrong by not doing that. <clears throat> dress was uniform in Hernhut. That meant that every man dressed in the same clothes as the other, known as black coats by the American Indians. Every Moravian brother wore the same color and cut of clothes, Every woman dressed in the same style dress as the others. The only distinction between the women was the ribbon that held on their head covering. This gave a lot of freedom to Anna and the other women. There were no worries, no daydreaming, or fretting about which color of dress to wear for the day, who had the prettiest material, how the cut should be, how low the hem. Yes, the uniformity freed Anna and the other sisters from having to waste time on such frivolities. When her dress wore out, Anna already knew what pattern the next one would be and what material would look like. From neck to ankle to elbow, everything was modestly covered without the first sign of lace, ruffles, or unnecessary adornments. Anna's head covering was the stock Moravian style. 
Raven veils covered the hairline and the ears, solid white, and tied on with the colored ribbon designated to her group. I'm not saying any of these things is just any standard for this church. I'm saying other people have dealt with much what we would call more trivial issues and said it and followed it. And guess what? Here is the real powerful thing for me. After reading more than a 1,000 pages of Moravian church history to compile this booklet, I have yet to find that any of the men or women ever complained about it during the first years. Their hearts were set on higher matters and personal preferences to dress melted in the light of the opportunity to be part of a consecrated brotherhood. There's a lot of thoughts and talk in our minds and discussions about this thing of going on to higher matters. I'd like to propose to you if you really want to go into higher matters, it's in your lap. It all depends on the perspective you take on practical issues. The example of history is there. It can be done. Why was there no complaint? It's because they considered an opportunity to be part of such a powerful group, one of the groups that shook the world like no other group ever has. didn't hinder them from winning converts. It made them attractive. They were a magnet. And they could win large numbers of people in many Many, many parts, many different continents around the globe, obviously many different cultural settings. <clears throat> At one point, Hernhut had about 600 residents, but 70 of the number were doing missions, evangelism, to one part of the world or the other. That meant over 10% of the congregation was dedicated solely to the work of the gospel, not counting those involved in ministering locally. The whole community was consecrated to a cause. The cause? Jesus Christ. No one was to make a decision based on his own good, but on the good of the whole. Those who could not throw their life into the direction and goal of the community were simply not permitted to live there. There was a reason. There was a reason for living the way they lived. And each of the above-mentioned aspects only contributed to the ability to press toward the goal. Holiness, simplicity, and economy and food, dress, and housing, orderliness, and righteous dealings among themselves were like the gears of a great God-glorifying machine. Without each of those gears in place, the machine would have surely soon quit functioning. And if it quit functioning, God would not be glorified. Therefore, it must function. Each gear must take its place. In the Zinzendorfian community, egotism became an oblation to a high spiritual purpose. The inner life of its people derived its sustenance from a pure, simple, and active faith. And all their actions were made subservient to the spiritual ends. A total surrender of egotism was, accordingly, the first step to membership in this people, fashioned after the old apostolic times. And here is a song from their setting. Simple mind, thou graces wonder. Deepest wisdom, greatest might. Fairest jewel, Love's defender, work that God alone can make. Liberty does walk in fetters. Riches are but empty wind. 
defaced soon shall beauty be. When we're not of simple mind, when simplicity we cherish, weave a whole and perfect light. But that view away will vanish soon as double grows our sight. He alone who builds on Jesus and in him does all possessed, he is built on the foundation, is a child of grace, well blessed.